Let's pray. Father, thank you so much uh, for your word. And Lord, thank you that um, it teaches us and encourages us and challenges us. And uh, Lord, as some of us were praying this morning, it helps us to flourish. And so, Father, I pray that uh, by your spirit, you do that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, way back when I was a teenager, so I think I was probably about 14 years old, uh, my sister and I, we were at church youth group, and my stepdad came to pick us up at the end of the night, and we just got a new family car, and uh, I hadn't figured out the door handles on the new family car yet, and so my stepdad pulls out, my sister gets in the front passenger seat, and because I'm a little bit slow on the uptake sometimes, I was like just fiddling around, I couldn't get the door open, and all of a sudden the car just drives away. And I was like, oh, ha ha, stepdad, that's very funny. You know, surely he's going to stop. And the church had this long driveway. And so he's driving down this long driveway out to the main road. And I'm kind of walking after the car. And I realize he gets to the main road, stops for a second, puts on the turn signal, and then just takes off. And I was like, he forgot me. He totally forgot me. And this is pre-cell phone days. And so I was like, well, what am I going to do? Do I, I just live here now? This is, this is just where I live. And so I walked over to someone's house who lived nearby the church. I started walking there because I'm like, I got to call home to tell my mom, to tell my stepdad when he gets home to come back and get me. And about the time I get over there, I see out of the corner of my eye, the the car pulls up. And he rolls down the window. I was like, hey, you forgot me. He's like, well, yeah, sorry. And I got in the car. I was like, what happened? And, And he's like, I just thought you were there. And here's the thing. My sister knew the whole time I wasn't in the car. And so she wanted to see how long it would take if they could get all the way home before anybody even noticed that I wasn't there. And my stepdad told me that he didn't realize that I wasn't there until a few minutes in. He turned to ask me a question. I was in the car and he freaked out and turned around to come back and get me. Now, what is the point of that story? Why am I telling you that story? Well, today we're starting a new series looking at the New Testament book uh, called Acts. And uh, in it, what we see are these two major themes that are actually very tied together. Uh, And so one theme is uh, the spreading out of the church across the ancient world. And then the second theme is the flourishing of both the church and the individuals within the church. And the question is, as you're reading this book, the question you're asking is, how did this happen? How is it that a group of people on the very fringes of society spreading out from a very fringe region within the world? I mean, this is fringe upon fringe, how did they launch a world-changing movement? I mean, there's just no way that happens unless two things are true. Number one, that the message they're spreading is actually true. And then number two, that the people who are spreading it were, they were somehow supernaturally empowered. That's what the book of Acts is all about. It's about the spreading out of the church across the ancient world, and it's about the flourishing of both the church and the individuals within the church. And that happens because the message they're spreading is actually true, and they're supernaturally empowered. Now, again, what does that have to do with my stepdad forgetting me at church when I was a teenager? Well, everything. It has everything to do with it. Because today, today we seem to have forgotten the Spirit. We've forgotten the Holy Spirit. A number of years ago, Francis Chan came out with a book about the Holy Spirit, who's the third person of the Trinity. And the book is called The Forgotten God. And I always love that title because I think that's true. It's as if we're driving down the road thinking it seems awfully quiet back there in the back seat, but never turning around to see who's missing. And so the book of Acts, it's all about the starting, the spreading, the flourishing of the church across the ancient world as they share the true message about Jesus Christ transcending 
living a perfect life, dying an excruciating death on the cross, him buried, him risen, him ascended into heaven. But the reality that's undergirding this whole thing, this whole book, is the reason that it spread so powerfully and so quickly is those first Christians were supernaturally empowered by God himself in the person of the Holy Spirit. And here's what I want us to contemplate as we look at this book. Do you feel empowered? Do you feel your life is supernaturally empowered by God in some way? Are, are you flourishing? Or are you just scraping by? Is the church, is it spreading out in our day? Is it maintaining or is it, is it shrinking? There's a promise made to these first, in these first few verses that actually unlocks the door to understanding how not only did the early church spread across the ancient world, but how those within the church actually flourished. And the promise is this. It's right here in verse 4. Uh, this is uh, Jesus talking. Luke is quoting Jesus, and he says, Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water... But in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And so what I want to do is I want to look at this passage. And and as we do, I want to look at three things. I want to look at what the promise is. Jesus talks about a promise there. So what is the promise? And then I want to talk about that word baptism. That's a strange word in there. What, What is that? What is that baptism? And then thirdly, what is it that the promise accomplishes? So what the promise is, what the baptism is, and what the promise Accomplishes. So first, what the promise is, and the promise is, verse 5, that they will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And we're going to come back to that idea of baptism in a minute, but first, let's just pause and ask the question, who is the Holy Spirit? And I admit that this is somewhat hard for us to get our heads around. Uh, many years ago now, uh, I was uh, with some friends in Wyoming in the summertime. And the thing that you must do if you're in Wyoming in the summertime is go to the rodeo. And so we're at the rodeo, and this is like the, the closest thing I think we have today to what happens in, happened in the gladiator rings. Because, uh, I mean, people are riding animals they shouldn't be. But there's, a, there's an event that happened during this rodeo, and it's called the wild horse race. And it's exactly what it sounds like. What they do is they, uh, they let three wild horses loose in a ring, and they put like a bit in their mouth and a, a, like a probably eight-foot rope hanging out of the bit in their mouth. And they set these three wild horses loose in this huge rodeo ring. And then there are three teams of two. And the goal is catch the horse, put a saddle on it, and ride it around in a barrel. And now here's what you get if you do that. You get the horse. You get to keep the horse. That's, that's, that's what they're playing for. They're not playing for money. They're playing for the horse. And so they let these horses loose, and they let these three teams of two go. And I'm watching this thing, and it's incredible. They're, like, running around, lunging after the horse. And, and I, this one team seems to be pretty good, and, and they actually caught the horse first. And the guy's, like, holding it down, and his teammate puts the saddle on and then he jumps on the horse and it's like, okay, these guys are going to win. And all of a sudden the horse just goes nuts and the guy and the saddle go flying off the horse. As the guy lands on the ground and he's clearly messed up his knee. So he's writhing on the ground in pain and you're watching this happen. And as he's there, like struggling, suffering, you see this other team and they catch the horse and they ride around the barrel. But as this guy is laying there, a horse comes running by. And so he lunges for the rope catches the rope, and is using his one good leg to hold the horse down while his teammate runs from the other side of the ring and comes running over, puts the saddle on, but the guy who messed up his knee is the guy who rides the horse. So they come, and he, the other guy grabs the rope. The guy with the messed up knee hobbles over to the horse, gets on it, rides it around the barrel for third place. He didn't even get a horse. 
I don't know what he got. It was utter chaos. I mean, this was, watching this was one of the most chaotic things I've ever seen in my life. And, and here's why I'm telling you that story. I think getting our heads around the doctrine of the Trinity <laughs> and how that all works together is like watching the wild horse race. It's difficult. It's exhausting. It's elusive. Uh, sometimes even painful. But just stick with me here. Because here's what we do understand. You know, like you understand what a father is. Um, you know, that's a concrete idea. You understand who a son is. That's a concrete idea, you know. Um, we all have fathers to one degree or another. Uh, we all know fathers. Some of you are fathers. And we can all understand what a son is. But the spirit, now that's much less concrete. And so what are we talking about? Are we talking about Ghostbusters? Are we talking about Oprah? Is the Holy Spirit something we can know? Do, do we feel it? Do we sense it? Well, look at the text here in Acts chapter 1. What does it say? Jesus said in verse 4, the Spirit is promised to them by the Father. And Jesus actually said, I spoke about him. I already told you about him. So what is he referring to? What did he tell them about the Holy Spirit? Well, he's referring back to John chapter 16. And in John 16, Jesus said this about the Holy Spirit. It'll come up on the screen for you. Uh, But when he, the Spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Now, just notice the way Jesus talks about the Spirit. He's talking um, not about an impersonal spiritual force. He's talking about a person. He, he uses words of personhood here. Uh, sometimes to, to try and describe who the Holy Spirit is, people will talk about maybe the force in Star Wars, but that doesn't work because the force is, that's an impersonal force. In Star Wars, the force can be manipulated by individuals for good or for evil. You know, the, the force bends to a user's will and sometimes can be stronger with some than with others. That's what I'm told. I've never seen the movie all the way through. <laughs> now, I can just say that that is absolutely nothing like God the Holy Spirit. God the Holy Spirit is not some impersonal force that can be used and manipulated for individual gain. He doesn't bend to a person's will He is God of very God. He is God, the Holy Spirit, who has eternally existed as a distinct person within the Trinity, along with God the Father and God the Son. You see him immediately when you open up the pages of Scripture because he was hovering over the waters of creation in Genesis chapter 1. Here's just next slide, just a few lists, just a list of a few things that the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. It says that he creates in Genesis chapter 1. In Acts chapter 12 or 13, it says that he speaks and he sends. In Acts chapter 20, he he makes choices. In John 14, he teaches. In Romans chapter 8, he intercedes. In other words, he prays. And in Isaiah 63, he gives. In Acts chapter 5, he can be lied to and tested. In Acts chapter 7, he can be resisted. In Ephesians chapter 4, he can be grieved, which means he can be sad. And in Matthew chapter 12, he can be blasphemed. In other words, he is God. And so he's no impersonal force. He doesn't bend to my petty desires or obey my will. He has his own will, his own desires. And so he is God of very God. He is of the same substance as God the Father and God the Son, eternally existent in perfect Trinitarian harmony with the Father and the Son. And get this, this is the promise now. So Jesus said, there's a promise God promised you something. And this is the promise that anyone who is a Christian is baptized with the Holy Spirit. 
Now, again, we're going to come back to that word baptize in just a minute. But for now, here's what the promise is. Anyone who is a Christian is intimately, essentially, fundamentally connected to God, to all of God's power, all of God's goodness, all of his kindness, all of his mercy, all of his justice, his righteousness, his love. We are intimately, essentially, fundamentally connected to God through the person of the Holy Spirit. That's what the promise is. And all of that for both the spreading of the church and the flourishing of those who are in the church. And so if you are a Christian, that promise is for you. And again, what I want us to reflect on is, are you experiencing that? Are you flourishing? And just to be completely transparent, I don't think I'm experiencing the fullness of this promise. But I want to. And that leads us then to point two, what the baptism is, because this is where we connect these two things together. The baptism is actually the connection that we have to the promise. It's how we receive and experience the promise of the Holy Spirit. And the way that I think Luke wants us to think about baptism in this passage is like clothing. Now, the word there, uh, baptism, normally means to be immersed into water. Um, And that is most definitely the meaning of that word in this passage. It it carries that meaning of to be immersed into something. Uh, And we know that because Jesus compares this baptism with the Holy Spirit to what John the Baptist was doing. He was immersing people into uh, the Jordan River. But contained in this passage is also the idea of something that is ongoing. Not that a person would be baptized again and again and again and again, but a baptism that never leaves. In other words, it's like clothing. And let me show you where I'm getting that idea. I'm not just making it up. Uh, The last time that Luke quoted Jesus saying this exact same thing, he quoted him at the end of Luke's gospel. And then right here, we know that he also wrote the book of Acts. So he quotes Jesus saying the same thing two times, one in Luke 24 and one in Acts chapter one. And the the last time he did that, uh, you could probably flip back a page if you have the Bible open to Luke 24, verse 49, or it'll be on the screen. Here's what Jesus said. Luke's quoting the exact same conversation. He says, I'm going to send you what my father has promised, right? So far, same thing. But stay in the city, still same thing, until you have been, and here's the word, clothed with power from on high. You can tell a lot about somebody by the clothes that they wear. So, for example, if somebody's willing uh, to wear this, you know, a block of cheese on their head, and go to the next one there, Lance. Uh, you're willing to wear this on your head, that tells you something about you. It tells you that you're a, a Green Bay Packers fan. Um, and today's a big day for you. Um, or if you're uh, maybe wearing a pair of these, next slide. Um, if you can't tell, those are Jimmy Choo shoes. Um, those are not from our closet at home. But if you're wearing those, what you're wanting to express is that you have some wealth. Or at least you want people to think that you have wealth. Um, or maybe back in the 90s, if you wore a pair of these. Next one. Um, these are Jinko jeans, for those of you that weren't around in the 90s. Uh, and these, wearing these jeans told a lot about you, it told you what your hobbies were, it told you what kind of music you like, it told you certain hobbies that maybe were not legal that you would do. It kind of told you everything about you uh, in a pair of pants. And so you knew who that person was, you knew what their identity was by what they're wearing. Now here's what this is getting at. To be baptized with the Holy Spirit is to be clothed with new clothes. 
And then let's just connect this idea with what we were saying before. To be baptized with the Holy Spirit is to be clothed, to be wrapped in the Holy Spirit himself, which means now you are identified with God. And so what you wear says a lot about you. But compare that with the clothes that we wear every day. You know, the clothes that we put on, they identify us with something. And, you know, maybe the clothes that you wear, maybe they identify you with wealth or beauty or with thriftiness or with nostalgia or maybe with your sexuality or maybe, maybe with your career. Maybe you have to wear something every day or, or maybe they, they identify you with your hobbies or your taste in music or your favorite sports team or your state or, uh, you know, your country of origin, your culture of origin. All of those things are, are things that we wear that tell others about who we are. But compare that with being clothed with the third person of the Trinity, and all of those things seem so thin. It seems like going to Alaska in the dead of winter with nothing more than a fleece. It offers some protection, but not nearly enough to sustain you for more than a few minutes exposed to the elements. And so here's my point. Your career isn't there for you when your marriage, when your friendships are falling apart. Your sexuality isn't there for you when you're broke. Your favorite band or TV show, they're, they're not, it's not enough for you when you're lonely because eventually the song ends or the credits roll. And so here's the point. We need clothing much thicker than what we typically choose to wear. And what Jesus is saying here is that the Christian is fundamentally clothed with the Holy Spirit. This is what it means to be baptized with the Holy Spirit. The Christian, from the moment that he or she places their faith in Christ for the forgiveness of sins and the life ever after, is immediately clothed with the Holy Spirit permanently. In the book of Ephesians, it actually says that we are seals with the Holy Spirit in that moment. And so that then leads us to point three. What is it that that promise accomplishes? What does that do for us? If that's how we're clothed, what does that mean practically? Well, it means two things, and we've already said them. It means, number one, for the church to spread out. And number two, it means for those in the church to flourish. And so let's actually do those in reverse order. What is, it, what is being baptized, clothed with the Holy Spirit? What does that have to do with, with my flourishing, with your flourishing? Because you might hear that and think, well, wait a minute, I don't want anybody that invasively in my life, especially if they have that much authority. I don't really want them that much in my life. But actually you do. You actually do, because remember what Jesus said back in verse four. He says, wait for the gift my father promised, which you have heard me speak about. And so to learn what it is to flourish, we need to go back and look at what Jesus said about the Holy Spirit. So remember back in John 16, Jesus is in uh, the middle of giving what's called the, the upper room discourse. It's his last teaching before he's arrested. And in this long teaching, he says several things that point to what it is to flourish and how it is that the Spirit causes that flourishing. And so first in John 16, he says this in verse 13 would be on the screen for you. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Verse 14, he will glorify me because it is from me that he will receive what he will make known to you. 
Now, I want you to hold on to one thing from that, and that is the role of the Spirit, Jesus says, is to glorify Christ. Hold on to that. Uh, Because, by the way, what does it mean to glorify someone? What does that mean? It means to exalt them. It means to praise what is virtuous, what is beautiful, what is good about someone. C.S. Lewis, in his book, Reflections on the Psalms, he talks about it like this. It's one of my favorite uh, quotes from Lewis, one of my favorite books of his. He says, uh, but the most obvious fact about praise, whether of God or anything, strangely escaped me. I thought of it in terms of compliment, approval, or the giving of honor. I had never noticed that all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise. The world rings of praise. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favorite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favorite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. I had not noticed how the humblest and at the same time the most balanced and great minds praised most while the cranks, misfits, and malcontents praised least. The Holy Spirit praises. He glorifies Christ. He exalts Christ the same way that you and I exalt our favorite meal or our favorite film director. This is what the Holy Spirit has been doing from all eternity. But there's more that Jesus said about glory because one chapter over in John chapter 17, he's still giving this long teaching. And in verse 24, he says this again, it should be on the screen for you. Father, I want those you have given me to be with me where I am, to see my glory, the glory you have given me because you loved me before the creation of the world. Now, there's a lot going on in that verse because it's actually a reference to the Trinity. And we don't have time to get into all of it because to talk about the Trinity is to wade into deep waters. But let me just summarize doctrine of the Trinity in just two sentences or maybe three. Uh, God is a being who exists eternally in three persons. Each person is fully God and yet God is one. And inside those three persons, inside within the Trinity, they have been knowing and loving and glorifying one another from all eternity. It says here in this verse, uh, in in John 17, from before the creation of the world. And within the Trinity, what that's telling us is that each person in the Trinity is not seeking his own glory, but the glory of the others. And as a result, then, the flourishing, they're flourishing. There's infinite joy, infinite happiness, infinite love. And again, we're dipping our toes into deep waters here, but just think about this for a minute. What I'm telling you right now, this is the reason for creation itself. The fact that God is Trinity is actually the answer to why you and I are even here. Why this whole creation exists. Think about it. If God was uh, unipersonal, that's what the theologians say, uh, meaning he's not trying to, meaning, uh, you know, he's singular, sort of like Allah. Um, What kind of, uh, what would that kind of God, why would that kind of God, why would he create That kind of God would create in order to get worshipers, in order to get people to glorify him, in order to receive love. That kind of God would create because he's lonely. And so if that's the case, then let's just contrast that. Why would a triune God create? 
I mean, that God already has love, infinite love. A triune God already has glory, has infinite glory, happiness, flourishing. What need does that God have to create? None. That God has no need to create. So why would he? Well, it's not to receive love. It's not to get happiness. It's not to get glory because he already has all of that. He does it in order to share it, to share his love, to share his joy, to share his glory. Now, are you still with me? Because look at this, just a few verses uh, below in verse, uh, before this, in verse 22, Jesus said uh, to God, the father, he says, father, I want my followers to have the glory that we have. And then in verse 23, he says, I want them to share the complete unity and the love that we have. And so the whole point of creation, are you following me here? Is not for God to get love, not for God to get glory, but for him to share it in order that we would enjoy it. That's the reason for creation. And so the point of all of this, this is where we're going. The point of all of this is then, therefore, the most practical thing that that you and I need to realize, if that is true... If this is how and why God created the world, then the only way that you and I will flourish, the only way that we will experience the fullness of this joy, the only way that your heart will stop being restless is if you learn to enjoy God as you glorify him. And remember John 16, this is what the Holy Spirit does. Remember, this is what the Holy Spirit's been doing forever. He glorifies Christ. And so... Every time we glorify Christ, do you know what that means? This is so profound. Every time we glorify Christ, that means we are joining God, the Holy Spirit, and what he has been doing for all of eternity. We're not just singing songs. We're joining God in what he's been doing. And so this is the most practical thing a person can do to flourish, is to glory. This is what you were made to do. And so think about your own life. Do you feel restless in some way? Unaccomplished. This is the start of the, the new year. And so if you're like me over the past seven days, all you've been thinking about is all the things you didn't accomplish last year and all the things you want to accomplish this year. But what this is saying is that even the greatest accomplishment won't fulfill you. It won't give you that fully satisfied flourishing. This is why the, the great ancient theologian Augustine, he said this, he said, you have made us for yourself, O Lord. And our hearts are restless until they rest in you. And so this is what the Holy Spirit helps us to do. He he teaches us. He guides us. He leads us in worship along with him so that we would glorify Christ. And in so doing, we would begin to flourish. It is only in joining the Holy Spirit and glorifying Christ that our hearts will learn to be at rest. And so now I hope you can see this is where forgetting the Spirit, ignoring the Spirit, diminishing the Holy Spirit, this is where this becomes a problem. And so let me just give us one very practical application. Um, You know, singing in church, it's not just a sort of cultural thing. It's it's not something that we just started doing uh, recently. Those who worship God, they've actually been singing since creation. You know, the very first thing out of Adam's mouth in the Bible is a song. And so singing is something given to us by God to help us to glorify him. And so here's my my practical application for us. 
when we sing here on Sunday mornings, sing. Sing your heart out. Again, this is so profound because when we're doing that, we are joining with God, the Holy Spirit, and what he has been doing for all of eternity, the most important thing that God could do, we're joining him in that. And so, look, we work hard to select songs that glorify God. And anything that glorifies God the Father and God the Son and God the Spirit, the Holy Spirit loves that. And therefore, it will help us to flourish. And so that's just a practical way of us joining with what the Holy Spirit is already doing. And I'm just going to be bold on this. Not singing, mumbling along, thinking about other things, you know, what somebody's wearing today while we're worshiping. That is you diminishing the Holy Spirit. That is you ignoring the work of the Holy Spirit. This is how being clothed with the Spirit helps us to flourish. We join with him in what he's doing. Now, lastly, what is being clothed clothed with the Spirit help? uh, How does that help spread the church? Back in Acts chapter 1, back to our main passage, look at verse 8. It says, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Now, what this is saying is the church, it actually spreads through witness. The church doesn't spread on its own. It spreads through witness. It spreads through you and I. And what is it to witness? Well, it's simply to let your praise, your giving glory to Christ overflow to those who don't know him. It's allowing the message of who Christ is, the son of God, come to earth and what he has done, he, he lived a perfect life. He died for our sins. He was raised from the dead, ascended to heaven in order to purify us. And it's allowing that message, in other words, being a witness to that, allowing that to overflow to those who have not yet received the message. But more simply, to, praise Christ, to witness is to praise Christ in front of or to those who don't yet know him. That passage I read from C.S. Lewis earlier He actually goes on uh, a couple paragraphs later to say this about praise. He said, I had not noticed either that just as men spontaneously praise whatever they value, so they spontaneously urge us to join them in praising it. Isn't she lovely? You didn't know that Stevie Wonder stole that from Lewis. (laughs) Isn't she lovely? Wasn't it glorious? Don't you think that magnificent? I think we delight to praise, get this, I think we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses, but completes the enjoyment. The delight is incomplete until it is expressed. In other words, ultimate flourishing comes not when we bottle up and hoard our own personal enjoyment of Christ, but when we share it with others. That is the completion of your enjoyment. This is what it is to be a witness. And as we go through the book of Acts, what we'll see is example after example of this overflow, uh, or in the words of the text uh, today, this witness being not only fuel for the flourishing of individuals, but fuel for the spread of the church. And the two things always go hand in hand. Well, let me just one example very quickly, Acts chapter 16, verse 5. And you'll see both the flourishing and the spreading happening at the same time. Um, Here it is on the screen. Acts 16, verse 5. So the churches 
were strengthened in the faith, that's the flourishing, and grew daily in numbers, that's the spreading. And that happens over and over and over again through the book of Acts. So as we start this new year, this is my hope and my prayer for our church, that we would flourish and spread. So to that end, let's not forget the spirit. Let's not ignore him. Let's not diminish him. But instead, let's embrace him. Let's welcome him to lead us, to teach us, to encourage us. And in so doing, that we would both flourish and his church would spread. Let's pray and ask for the Spirit's help in that. Lord, we ask that by your Spirit, we would flourish. We pray that we would so enjoy Christ and the glory of Christ that our hearts would just flourish, that we would overflow that flourishing into witness to the city around us. Father, we ask that you would do all of this that Acts 16.5 would be true of us as well. We ask that you do it in Jesus' name.